Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. We're about to get into the Word, and I just encourage you to open up Revelation chapter 3 if you um, have it handy. Either bring it up on your phone or in one of the Bibles sitting around you in the seats. And I'd love you to have that open for the next little while. I'm going to pray uh, and then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you so much for bringing us together this morning, Father. Uh, we, as we were just saying before, uh, we realise it's you who've brought us to this place for all kinds of reasons. We pray, Father, that as we gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, Father, that we would be encouraged as we live for Jesus and love like Jesus, as we long to see more people more like him. We pray that this time together now around your word would be uh, beneficial to us. Father, remind us of the things we know. Uh, Teach us those things that we don't yet know, we pray this morning. And Father, we pray that you'd move us all uh, to love Jesus and by your spirit to be even more sold out to his purposes and his agenda in the world. And so, Father, encourage us, mould us, meld us by your Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, before Nick comes up to read uh, Revelation 3 for us, I thought it'd be helpful to kind of recall um, three kind of simple things, three keys that we've looked at so far in this series in Revelation that I hope actually will kind of set us up a little bit for as we look at Revelation chapter 3 today. Uh, the three things I think are going to pop up on the screen at some stage. Are they there? No? No slides. Oh, well, here you go. Um, that's fine. Um, Here's the first thing. The first thing I want us to recall as we come to Revelation 3 today, as we come to week 4 in our series in the book of Revelation, is that the book of Revelation was written to a historical context. Oh, there we go. Kind of like, like, kind of like no other in the New Testament. Um, throughout the New Testament, if you know it well, we come across kind of sporadic persecution of Christians in various times in the first century, but only in the book of Revelation um, do we see wholesale widespread Roman repression of Christians throughout sort of an entire region that we know as today as Turkey, um, what they called Asia. Um, The evidence in the book of Revelation is that um, Christians were under massive pressure, some believers even losing their lives already by this stage in the late 90s AD. Um, We also have um, evidence beyond the Bible, so Roman evidence that this was going on. Uh, We have a long letter written about 10 to 15 years after the book of Revelation was written from the governor of Bithynia, a guy named Pliny, uh, to the Roman emperor Trajan. We've read a little bit about this, but he writes this. I've not shared this before. He writes, I dismissed any who denied they were Christians when they had repeated after me a formula calling on our gods and made offerings of wine and incense to your statue, O Trajan. A reference to the imperial cult that we thought about last year, worship, uh, last week, um, worship of the emperor. And he goes on, and furthermore, those who reviled the name of Christ, none of which things I understand any genuine Christian can be induced to do. But if they persist in following Jesus, I order that they be led away for execution. 
And this unique historical setting where there's this widespread persecution of Christians throughout this part of Turkey explains the second key that I want to bring up this morning, which is the unique kind of literary style of the book of Revelation. Uh, So the second thing we want to recall, Revelation is written in a genre called apocalyptic, well known in ancient times to Jews and to Christians. And here's a way to describe it. Apocalyptic literature is a Jewish style of literature used in anxious times to unveil universal truths using coded imagery. And it's that coded imagery, right, that messes with the heads of us today, like contemporary Christians, because it's not a literary style we're kind of used to. And because some people read this kind of coded imagery in semi kind of concrete ways, they can get a little bit out of shape with it, where to the first century hearer, it was kind of crystal clear. The cool thing about apocalyptic genre, right, the value of it, isn't just so that the Romans couldn't understand it, right? The Romans didn't understand what was going on. So you could say whatever you like. The Romans probably thought the Christians were like wacko or high or something like that. They couldn't understand it. But the other cool thing about apocalyptic is that it takes normal, kind of -of run-of-the-mill theological ideas and amps them up in really imaginative ways that excite the senses and kind of warm the heart. So for example, the way that the common theme of the word of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is portrayed through the book of Revelation, how is it portrayed in the book of Revelation? Anyone remember? A sword, yeah, a sharp, double-edged sword. Book prize for you, brother. No, um, which was kind of pictured as a close combat weapon, right, in the first century. Now, this, right, has nothing to do with violence. It's an apocalyptic image of the word of Jesus, the gospel. And it's just saying that in the midst of terrifying, anxiety-provoking battles with Rome... All we need to do is hold on to the gospel. It's the only weapon we need. So there's this encouragement to hang on. And this introduces the third thing I want to bring us back to this week. Despite the complexity and the challenge for us of this literary genre, the theme of Revelation is really clear. It's really simple. Here's my attempt, right? If Jesus is the risen and eternal Lord, only his kingdom will remain. So staying true to his ways, even to the point of death, is true victory. You see, the temptation in anxious times for all of us is to adjust what you believe. That sort of decreases the dissonance or the distance we experience between what we as Christians believe and what the world around us wants to believe. And a natural kind of temptation for all of us is to adjust what we believe in order to reduce the distance or the dissonance. We compromise. But the book of Revelation makes clear, why would any rational person adjust what they hold to be an eternal truth just to fit into this little blip in history? Why would you do it? If the gospel of the Lord Jesus, right, is the eternal truth, the Christian worldview is the pathway to victory, why change what you believe? Makes no sense rationally to alter it in order to just fit in with this little blip in history. Well, we've studied the first four mini letters 
that John records for us, addressed to all these little seven churches in Asia, Western Turkey. And today we look at the remaining three. And all seven mini letters together set up beautifully what we're going to see for the rest of the whole book of Revelation. And I think these themes we've looked at today, context like no other, literary genre, and this simple theme will come into kind of sharp focus for us this morning as we look at the letters to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And so first we begin in Sardis, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And I want to welcome Nick, who's going to bring us the first little bit. Thanks, brother. You think I would clear my throat before I go up on stage, but anyway. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. You do have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thanks, mate. Um, keep that open in front of you. All, I don't know if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, but all the letters, these, all these mini letters uh, begin with some aspect of Jesus' authority or his glory. And the letter to Sardis is no different. Uh, so we're told in verse 1, if you have a look with me, that Jesus is the one who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars. If you're here in week one, uh, we know that the seven spirits is just a poetic way of referring to the Holy Spirit. And the seven stars is an apocalyptic way of referring to the seven angels of the churches or the seven messengers of the churches. So the big picture here is, right, that Jesus is the one who actually holds the spirit and holds all the messengers. In other words, what we're about to hear is divine communication, not simply human communication. This is the word of God. It's like every letter says, right, towards the close of the letter, whoever hears them, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is not human communication. And as much as we have to labor to understand the tricky genre and we have to do all the historical homework and get our poetic hats on and things like that, we don't ever stand over this text as if we're the literary critic. I mean, I don't know, I love plumbing the depths, I love exploring all the intricacies, I love joining all the dots from the Old Testament through to the New Testament, I mean, like anyone, right? But in the end, we sit underneath this text, for it comes from the one who holds the seven spirits and holds the seven stars in the palm of his hand. This is huge authority, and I hope you feel that. Then follows the dramatic I know statements, right? That usually are kind of positive or comforting in the other letters, right? Like, you know, I know how hard you've got it. I know that you're kind of hanging in there, but not so much here. Verse one, 
I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. We don't know the precise details about this church, but Jesus' judgment right is that it's on the verge of death as a church. It has unfinished deeds, verse 2, this church. This doesn't mean, by the way, that they haven't done enough good stuff in order to get into heaven. Um, One of the clearest themes in the New Testament and in the book of Revelation is that we get into God's kingdom not through good works, but through the good gift of God. That's his gift to us, salvation, repentance, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not saying good deeds get us into heaven and you've not done enough good deeds. I think unfinished deeds almost certainly refers to them not remaining true to Jesus and his word until the end. Not confessing Jesus as Lord in the context of the imperial cult, choosing to declare that the emperor of Rome is the true Lord. He's the son of God and reviling Christ. We have some really disturbing evidence of this actually, a section that I haven't read yet from Pliny's letter to Trajan that refers to Christians who did deny Jesus. Um, Pliny says, actually, you can't get real Christians to do it, but listen to what he also says. Others of the accused declared at first that they were Christians, but then denied it, asserting they had been Christians, but ceased to be. They all worshiped your image and statues of the gods and cursed Christ. Unfinished deeds. And you know, like Jesus, when he was on planet earth in Matthew chapter 10 said, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. And whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. And now the risen, glorified Jesus seems to refer to that very teaching here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, when saying to Sardis, the one who is victorious, verse 5, will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Some are not acknowledging Jesus in public. Some are denying him. But sadly, I don't know if you caught this, it's the majority. Only a few don't. Verse 4, it's extraordinary. Jesus says, yet you have a few people in Sardis. Imagine this being said to City Light Church, North Adelaide. There are a few at City Light Church, North Adelaide, who've not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious, again, this means always suffering for the gospel until the end, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. Now, white... The colour white, even if it is a colour, but the colour white has a double meaning in the book of Revelation, and you can see it here. Um, Yes, it means pure, right? And we still have that sense in our culture of white equaling kind of purity. We kind of think like that. But it also symbolises victory in the book of Revelation. Um, So just hold that double meaning in mind as we, you know, see all kinds of white things coming at us over the next bunch of chapters in the book of Revelation. 
including, right, um, Jesus will come back riding on a white horse. It doesn't mean he's riding a pure horse, right? It means victory, yeah? So just keep that in mind. But here it has this double meaning. It is the pure and victorious ones who will be dressed in white. And this is possibly a subversive reference to the great triumphs of Rome. Um, when victorious generals returned to Rome after they'd won a, you know, a fantastic victory over the barbarians or the Scythians or whatever it was, you know, like think gladiator for a minute, right? When, when they came riding back into Rome, they didn't come riding back into Rome on a blood-splattered horse with blood-splattered you know, kind of uniforms and swords. What did they come back wearing? pure white togas, yeah, on the back of the chariot. Um, We should have a toga party here. No, no, we shouldn't. Um, That's what they wore. And so they'd have these ticker tape parades called the Triumph. And again, not dressed in military gear, they'd come dressed in these white togas, which is a symbol of victory. But here that imperial image is turned on its head. The truly victorious are those who've suffered for the name of Jesus until the very end. And these faithful few get their names in the ultimate city role. Verse 5, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. I mean, here is some people in Sardis who almost certainly have been blotted out of the city role in Sardis. But Jesus says, I will never blot out your name in the role of the city of heaven, the new Jerusalem. How wonderful. What an extraordinary hope in anxious times. I won't blot out your name. Sure, the people in your area, they might have blotted you out. They might even think you don't exist. But I will never do that to you, says Jesus. What a hope. All right, let's travel 45 kilometres southeast to Philadelphia, where it seems that the entire congregation, not just a few, are faithful. All right, back to you, brother. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Thanks. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are the synagogues of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of, of trial that is going to come on the world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This uh, six of the seven mini letters opens, I don't know if you noticed, with Jesus holding the key of David and then closes with a reference to the new Jerusalem. Um, And a bit of Old Testament background here makes this perfectly clear. Um, 
Here's like a Sunday school question for us all, right? And I'm going to get you to turn to the person next to you to sort of answer it. And whoever gets in first was the best Sunday school student, obviously, of the two of you. But um, who was it, ready? Who was it who first conquered Jerusalem in 1000 BC? Go, turn to the person next to you. Like no one. <laughs> We're back in Sunday school. Da, 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 da. All right, that's long enough. Who was it? Who first conquered Jerusalem in 1000 BC? Not Melchizedek. No lunch for you. No, I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> who was it? No. It was a person. It's a person. David. Yes. You get two bowls of pokey next door. Yeah. Um, King David, 1000 BC, right? According to 2 Samuel chapter 5, David conquered Jerusalem and David's the one who kind of metaphorically unlocks the city of Jerusalem. And then just two chapters later, 2 Samuel chapter 7, like mark 2 Samuel 7 in your Bible, like get your highlighter out and scribble all over it purple passage of the Bible, in 2 Samuel Samuel chapter 7, David is promised an eternal dynasty. It's amazing. Here is what it says. That's kind of modern ancient Jerusalem. This is what 2 Samuel 7 says. And it's coming. Yeah. The Lord, this is God speaking to David, the Lord will establish a house for you, David. I will raise up for you offspring who will succeed you. My love will never be taken away from him. Your house and kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Wow. And this letter, Revelation chapter 3, opens with Jesus holding the key of David and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And what it's saying, that Jesus is the key to the new Jerusalem, just as was promised to David. Jesus opens a door that no one can shut. The Savior who died to to bring us to God, he's flung open the doors of the new Jerusalem. By conquering death, Jesus is the new eternal king and son of David, the forever king. And as judge, so as, as the king, he can fling open the door and welcome everyone in. But as the judge, he can also close the door to the new Jerusalem. It's really striking language in verse 8. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. But for this church at Philadelphia, it's just all open door, right? No hint of judgment here. Jesus is promising to keep that door just wide open. I know, he says, this is beautiful, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and you've not denied my name, almost certainly a reference to the imperial cult and the problem, problem of being kind of pressured and, and coerced to kind of deny Jesus. He actually goes on to say, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Jesus knows that this little congregation in Philadelphia going through hell is faithful. And the reference to the synagogue of Satan, we should already know what that means. Two weeks ago, was referred to also in Smyrna. There's a synagogue of Satan there in Philadelphia. Remember, uh, throughout the book of Revelation, almost always when you know, the devil or Satan is mentioned, it's a refer- reference to 
Rome, well done, Maggie, good job. This is a Jewish synagogue in Philadelphia collaborating with Roman authorities against the Christians in that town. Some Jews are turning on the Christians and dobbing them into the Roman authorities, maybe issuing those anonymous pamphlets to the Roman authorities, listing you know, the names of Christians, and you know, there's a bunch of Christians at 92 Archer Street and a few at Five Marion Place and that sort of stuff. He says they're liars, Jesus says. Probably a reference to legal proceedings against the Christians. But the result is a massive reversal for the believers. Verse 9 looks really weird, but it's perfectly explicable with a bit of Old Testament background. It says that these Jews, this synagogue in Philadelphia, he says, I will one day make them come and bow down and fall at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. A bit weird. But there's this classic Old Testament prophet, prophet, uh, promise right, about how Gentiles, non-Jews, would come down one day and, and fall at the feet of God's people, the Jews, right? And so here's one example of the promise, Zechariah chapter 8, note it down. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 people, numerology, whole number, 10 people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe, meaning on their knees, falling before the Jew, and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. So non-Jews coming to Jews to bow down and fall at their feet to declare that God is really who he says he is. And yet here in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus flips that on its head and actually says it's this Jewish synagogue in Philadelphia that will one day bow their knee, get on their knees and say God is really with you. A great reversal. Now it's important to realise at this point, brothers and sisters and friends, that this is not a universal promise that all Jews will one day come and bow before all Christians. Did you get that? Um, if you've fallen asleep during that little moment, please wake up. Um, it's, a really, it's a really important moment. This is not saying that all Jews will one day come and bow before all Christians. An anti-Semitic reading of this part of God's word defies the word of Jesus. It's just saying that this Jewish synagogue in Philadelphia in the first century will one day come to acknowledge that this puny church are actually the true people of God. The theme of reversal continues into verse 10. The next verse, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. We don't know exactly if this refers to the final judgment, that, you know, if that's the great trial, or if it's a more local kind of disaster like an earthquake, the area was prone to them. Either way, the point is this, this puny little faithful church that has suffered so much from the other residents of Philadelphia will be the only safe haven to be a part of when catastrophe comes. And the final promise, promise in verse 11 to 12 is also a reversal. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. 
Think about this. You're a puny church in Philadelphia. You're being bullied by the local residents, especially by the members of the local synagogue who are ganging up with the Roman heavyweights and dobbing you in. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to make you a pillar in the new temple, in the new Jerusalem. It was a great privilege in the ancient world to have your name written on a pillar. There are examples, archaeological examples of this all over the place where you know, people's names are written on pillars, you know, great benefactors. Adele and I, by the way, we're great benefactors. Prospect Primary School, you can go there and you can walk on a brick that we bought and then kind of embarrassingly had our name printed on. So I'd walk past and go, oh, look at those, the Jackson family. How lovely. You know, not really. These people in Philadelphia, right? They're not, they're not just a brick on the floor. They're not just a name on a pillar. They are a pillar, fully incorporated into the family of God's people, this puny church, harassed yet faithful. Incorporated. It's a wonderful picture of incorporation into God's family. And the point? Hang in there. You're doing so well. Philadelphia, I know you've got nothing. But in Christ you have everything. Sadly, we hear a very different set of promises for the church just down the road, the church in the lush Lycus Valley, the church of Laodicea. Nick's going to bring the final part of Revelation chapter 3. Thanks, brother. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and, and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, the city of Laodicea was one of the great inland cities of Asia or this part of Turkey. The soil was super fertile and lush. Uh, there were warm springs apparently all around the city where holiday makers would go to and sort of frolic in those. Um, there was this beautiful kind of east-west trade route that people would walk and, and trade along. And the city of Laodicea, right, they had their own river, the Lycus River, a beautiful, stunning part of the world. They were doing pretty well, right? And maybe that's why Jesus reminds them in the opening part of their letter that actually he is the ruler of creation, not them, because they sure did live in a beautiful, gorgeous part of God's creation.
Laodicea, fertile soil, own river, beautiful springs, etc. They were also ridiculously wealthy Laodiceans, right? Um, the Laodicea was so wealthy that in the year 60 AD, there was this huge earthquake and half, pretty much the whole city was just brought to the ground um, about 35 years after the book of Revelation was written. Emperor Nero, the emperor at the time, offered to pay for the rebuilding of the city, which most people would go, yeah, that sounds really great. They actually turned the officials down. They basically said, thanks but we'll pay for it ourselves. There you go. Because they could. With great pride, right, this city, they had so much, they could look after themselves and rebuild the city. And I think it's fair to say that this Laodicean mindset had seeped into the church of Laodicea. Verse 15, 16, 17 is really striking language. Verse 15, I know your deeds, you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They are lukewarm, possibly a pun to the warm springs all around them. I mean, everyone, everyone likes a refreshing cold drink, yeah? Who likes a refreshing cold drink? Yes. Who likes, nearly everyone likes a hot drink as well. Everyone like a hot drink? Yeah. No one, no one walks up to the coffee machine out the front and says, I'll have a lukewarm decaf soy latte. Or I'll have a oh, yeah, lukewarm long black today with an extra lukewarm shot. Like, no one says that. And I'm pretty sure if anyone on the coffee team heard that, they'd say, go to Pippo. <laughs> we don't do that around here. No one likes a lukewarm drink. Certainly not the ruler of creation. He finds it nauseating. And the word spit there in verse 16 is actually the word emeo in the original language, which is the word for vomit. Now, I don't know what's happened here, right, but the NIV sub-editors and the ESV sub-editors and all the English translation sub-editors have obviously thought, oh, no, 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 we possibly couldn't have the word vomit spoken on a Sunday morning at church, so they've ripped it out. I don't know why. The word emeo, right, is where we get the medical word emetic from. If you're a medico, welcome to church. Emetic things are things that make you sick, right? And so if you are sick and nauseated, we give people anti-emetics to help people stop being nauseated. There's a drug apparently called emetrol. I've never had it. I've had other ones, but not that one. But you get it, right? Anti-emetic. Um, the point is, Jesus is sick. Complacency born of wealth is sickening to Jesus. That's what he says. And it's really striking in this seventh mini letter to Laodicea that there's no persecution here, right? It's prevalent in all other six letters, not here. I don't know, is this just like a historical quirk in the historical record that at this particular time, this one little spot in the whole area was not receiving persecution? Or is it that this church was so wealthy 
so much a part of the establishment, so much compromise and so much complacency that they just blended in and so avoided all persecution. We don't know. We don't know. But we do know this. Complacency, born of wealth, can undo a church just as easily as anxious compromise or false teaching. The other churches in Asia were compromising right for fear of pressures from the Roman authority on them. Not this mob. This church is complacent because, well, they've acquired great wealth, verse 17. We don't need a thing. But compromise and complacency, brothers and sisters, can be killers of a church. So hence Jesus' plea in verse 18. I counsel you, it's like I beg you, I plead with you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, like truly rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. The thing is, right, in Laodicea in the first century, they were famous for eye medicine, apparently. Um, There was a famous ophthalmologist there named, I'm going to read it out from my notes so I don't totally stuff it up. His name was um, Demosthenes Philolithes. There you go. You never remember his name. But anyway, he was from Laodicea, famous ophthalmologist. I don't think it's a joke. I think maybe it's like a little jab from the author here. All the things they're proud of. All the things they trust, Jesus says, none of them are trustworthy. Buy the true salve so you can see. Exchange your money for the things of Jesus. Of course, this doesn't mean again that you can buy your salvation, right? Of course. It means that if you belong to Jesus, you and I will will use our money for the things Jesus loves. It's not rocket science. What does Jesus love? Jesus loves meeting the needs of the poor inside and outside the church family and he loves seeing the gospel advance to the ends of the earth. You know, take a walk through the Bible, take a walk through the gospels and the New Testament in particular and you'll see that Jesus likes money to be used by his followers by caring for the poor and advancing the gospel. Exchange your money for the things of Jesus. I'm not sure if I've said this before or quoted old statistics, but the latest statistics um, show that North Adelaide, the postcode North Adelaide, this suburb we live in, is the third wealthiest suburb in South Australia. There you go. According to the ATO and also according to the NAB Charitable Giving Index, like up there, right? Though North Adelaide is the 74th most charitable suburb in South Australia. Just just let it sink in for a minute. Third wealthiest, 74th most generous. Residents of North Adelaide and our church, we're in this part of the world, um, spend 18 cents per $100 on charitable giving. Right? 0.18. Compare that with Castle, Maine in Victoria, which is in the second lowest quintile so our society is brought up, broken up into section, like five quintiles, five sections. First quintile, wealthiest, and then it goes down to the, the least wealthiest people. Um, Castlemaine in Victoria is the second lowest quintile in Australia, 
with an average house, median household income each week of $902 compared to a median household income per week here in North Adelaide of about $1,700, $1,693. Castlemaine, Victoria, second lowest quintile, is the most generous when it comes to giving to charity in all of Australia. They give 36 cents in every $100, 0.36, which I'm pretty sure is double the percentage of income. Am I right? I'm not really good at maths. Yeah. Amazing. But let's not compare ourselves with Castlemania in Victoria. Let's compare our charitable giving with our spending on luxuries as people. Um, I might have said this before as well. So the median household income in this particular suburb is $1,693 per week. And some of you are thinking, what? How did... How do people earn that much money? Others of you are thinking, how can people survive on that much money? I'll leave that with you. But in this place, we spend 0.18% on charitable giving, but compare it to alcohol, how much we spend on alcohol in this demographic, 2.4% of income, or $2.40 per week for $100 on alcohol. That's 13 times more than what people spend on charity. Okay, what about holidays? Everyone loves a holiday. Half of our church is on holidays this weekend. We spend 4.1% or $4.10 per $100 on holidays. 23 times what we spend on charitable giving. These are just averages from the ABS. What about eating out? Everyone loves takeout, going to restaurants, chicken rice, you know. 4.8% of income. $4.80 in every $100 we spend on takeaway or restaurant. That's 27 times what we give to charitable organisations. And here's a scary thought. Our annual budget at City Light Church North Adelaide is around $125,000 or thereabout. You know what, we could, on the number of giving kind of units or families in our church, we could bankroll our whole budget based on what people in this demographic spend on alcohol. Bam. We could more than double the budget based on what we spend on holidays, and we could crush it if we stopped eating chicken rice and KFC. Now, don't get me wrong. Holidays are good. Meals out are lovely. Alcohol is a great gift from God to be enjoyed wisely. We're not called as God's people to be ascetics, right? But if we spend that sort of money on luxuries... What does it say about what we can do for the poor and for the work of the gospel? The question, of course, is, has the inner north, has middle classism seeped into City Light Church North Adelaide, just as the Laodicean mindset had seeped into the church at Laodicea? So Jesus urges us to exchange our money for the things that he loves. And the plea comes out of love, verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. I mean, how true is that? Like a parent who doesn't love and discipline their child is a parent who doesn't love their child. It's precisely that Jesus loves the Laodicean Christians and loves at City Light Church Adelaideans that he rebukes us and calls us to a better way. 
The tone of Jesus here is more pleading. It's not condemning. Verse 20 is remarkable, right? This is a verse that's been used over and over again throughout the years as an evangelistic statement, but it's actually in its proper context is here where Jesus is talking to the church. Listen to the pleading tone of Jesus in verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door, as in like outside your door, and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I think there's a contrasting pun here about doors, contrasted with the Philadelphians. What was said about them? Jesus has opened a door, no one can shut, and now he says, I can't even get in the door at your church at Laodicea. But I'm knocking, and I want to come in and I want to eat with you. We know that the historical Jesus recorded for us in the Gospels, wined and dined with sinners, showed remarkable hospitality to all comers. And now here is the glorified, risen Jesus begging to be let in the door, a door that he could just like kick down to eat a meal with his beloved people. Whether our issue is wealthy complacency or anxious compromise, Jesus invites us to his table, to fellowship, to friendship, to forgiveness, and to forever life. Let him in. Let him in. Earlier in our gathering this morning, we sang the Robin Robertson hymn, Come Thou Fount. Stunning him. It's on my list of when I die at my funeral to have that song sung. A bit morbid, but it's stunning. Robertson, um, famous 18th century UK poet and hymn writer. Um, according to, to this book, 101 hymn stories. Great bedtime reading, by the way. Um, when he was young, um, he wrote the hymn, Come Thou Fount when he was on fire for Jesus, when he was fervent, when he had great zeal for the mission of God. But as he became more famous and over time, the hymn writer lost his faith, walked away from Christ. Not through a great tragedy from what we can understand, not because it was cool to be a deconstructionalist, just through sheer laziness, sleepiness, complacency. Apparently, um, one day, the story goes, he was in a, a public carriage um, and the woman, off, uh, the woman sitting opposite him in this carriage was humming his king, his hymn. She was humming, humming his hymn. Um, he, he noticed that she was doing it right and, and he's kind of looking weirdly at her, like as you would. And she said to him, like you know this hymn? You know this hymn? It's lovely, isn't it? She said. She began to recite the words to him. Oh, how grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. And he stopped her and he explained to her that he was the author of the hymn that she was humming and that he would gladly give up everything to feel again what he felt when he wrote the hymn. But he basically said, but I think there's there's no way back for me. But this woman said, yes, there is. And you've actually written it in your hymn. How was that? Your hymn says, 
Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, bought me with his precious blood. I don't know the details, right? But he came back to the fold of God and to a robust faith in the Lord Jesus. The only way back for any of us is via the blood of Jesus shed for us. Just about the first thing we hear about Jesus in the book of Revelation is his blood. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And here's the beautiful thing. At the end of this seventh letter to this nauseating church at Laodicea, Jesus says the same love The same freedom is available to them. Even in their horrible complacency, there is a way back. Brothers and sisters, whether our issue is complacency or compromise, please hear the words of Jesus today. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears my voice and invites me in, I will eat with that person and they with me. Whoever hears, let him hear what the Spirit says to City Light Church, North Adelaide. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.